0: again, y'all can uh, respond to that how you want, or how you feel led, and let us know. All right, we've been in Mark. We looked last week, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, going through um, pretty intense emotional experience. He closes it by saying, all right, let's go. Let's get up, and let's go. He's been wrestling with God, not over the circumstances he's about to endure. We said the cup that he's talking about is not his faith. He knew exactly what he was getting into there. It's this idea of being separated from God for some period of time when God's wrath is poured on him. And he realizes, you know what? i got to take it. So he gets Peter, James, and John, the other rest of the eleven. They get up, and we'll pick up in verse 43. Just as he was speaking, that's Jesus, Judas, one of the twelve appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent with the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them the one I kiss is the man, arrest him at once. Oh, excuse me, arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then the men seized Jesus and arrested him. So the betrayal, the actual act of betrayal, there was uh, a legal, we would call it an arrest warrant, out for Jesus, and it was all legal. And But they didn't want to arrest Jesus in public because it would cause a scene. So what Judas had agreed to do was take them to Jesus in a time and place where they could get to him, where they could arrest him without causing... A big commotion. So they send these temple guards. There's probably 12 to 15 men out to arrest Jesus. Judas knows where he's going to be, and this I, this signal that he gives, kiss and calling him Rabbi, both of those are signs of respect. If you remember a few weeks ago, we said if we want to look at Jesus, Judas in the best possible light, if we want to say, you know, yes, he was treacherous, he betrayed, but if we want to look at him in the best possible light, maybe what he's trying to do is trying to provoke Jesus to be the Messiah, the way he thinks the Messiah. Should be. He's trying, to, he's trying to instigate this confrontation between Jesus and the authorities that will cause Jesus to really stand up and be the Messiah. And I'm wondering if that's why you see these signs of respect that he's giving to Jesus. He's, he's saying, all right, now's the time. I've rung the bell. It's time for you to be who I know you're going to be. And Jesus, again, he does it. He's arrested with hardly any fanfare at all. Then one of those standing near him drew a sword. We know that's Peter. Struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We know from John that Jesus healed this guy's ear. My leading rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. So the, the, the scripture Jesus is talking about, if you look during his arrest and his uh, trial and his crucifixion, Isaiah 53, you can go back and read that this week. is kind of undercurrent throughout. And Isaiah 53, 12 says he was numbered with the transgressors. So he's, he's arrested. He's being identified with people who've broken the law. Then they, We'll skip verse 51 and 52. We talked about that last week. Then they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. So the Sanhedrin's a group of 70 religious leaders. They had to have a quorum for this to be legal, so there's at least 22, 23 of them at this time. The way it would work, Jesus would be in there with this group of judges, and different witnesses would come in and give a statement. Jesus said this, Jesus did this. And they would all testify independently. There, was no, there weren't interrogations. They would just, they would come in and say, this is what I heard, this is what I saw. Now, the two accounts had to line up exactly. If they lined up exactly, then you had the testimony of two witnesses. Jesus could be found guilty of a capital crime and sentenced. What the, the struggle is, is that nobody's, uh, the testimony of these guys, they're not lining up, so they have to throw them <laughs> out, which actually, it's, it's ironic that they're following the letter of the law. They're throwing out all of this false testimony, but they've missed the spirit completely. They've come together not to figure out what's true. They've come together to condemn a man. That's their, in, their stated purpose is we want him to die, and so let's find some charges that will support our desire. So that's kind of what's going on there. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another not made by man. Yet, even then, their testimony did not agree. So, in the Roman world, it was a capital offense to um, speak in a negative way about, another, about a holy place. And to say you were going to destroy or desecrate a holy place, that's a capital offense. So, they think, hey, we've got something here. They're probably referring to John 2. Jesus says this. And John, Jesus' uh, cleansing of the temples at the beginning of his ministry. The Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do do all this? What gives you the right to come in and do what you've just done in this temple? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build it, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his body, and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. So that's what they're referring to. I remember he said this, and again, their testimony did not... Agree. Jesus is not responding. You notice he's silent through the whole thing, which is frustrating to Caiaphas, who's the high priest. He's not getting any testimony from witnesses that he can use. And Jesus isn't saying anything that he can use against him because he's being quiet. And so he gets frustrated. He kind of takes matters into his own hands and he begins to question Jesus directly. The high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, that ties back to Isaiah, this idea of the sheep being silent as it's led to slaughter. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? So that's kind of the, the whammy there. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. He's saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that God is sending to deliver Israel? The Jews believed that there would, that the Messiah would, would produce signs or evidence so they could identify him. I don't have to take your word for it. There's going to be signs that you're going to produce that lets us know that God sent you. So that's what they're saying. Are you the Messiah? And what they're looking at, if he says yes, they have got him. Because in their mind, there are no signs. He's got no followers. He's been arrested. He's been imprisoned. Not exactly the resume of a guy who has God's stamp of approval. And so from their perspective, from his mind, if he says yes, then they're going to hang him. And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What Jesus has done is he's, he's not just said, yes, I'm the Messiah. He's tied together two Old Testament prophecies of the, of the Messiah. Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, let me read these and you can hear where this comes from. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's his whole idea, sitting at the right hand of God, position of honor and power. Daniel 7, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. You heard that in Jesus' response. He approached the Ancient of Days That's a title for God and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what Jesus has done is he said yes, and he's put together two of these messianic prophecies to say that's me, that's your evidence. You might not have any evidence now, but that's going to be your evidence when you see me sit at the right hand of God and then you see me coming back to judge everyone, then you're going to know. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him. As worthy of death. So in Leviticus 24, it says, Anyone who blasphemes should be stoned. The penalty for blasphemy was death. Blasphemy is speaking against God, and what they're saying is, He has spoken against God. He's diminished God's majesty because this weak, arrested, no follower, imprisoned man, who we think is filled with demons and a heretic, is saying He's the Messiah. That diminishes God's authority. And God has the right to pick his own Messiah, and he's saying it's him. So they have kind of two strikes against Jesus. He's blasphemed. Everybody says, absolutely, he's worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Uh, Isaiah eleven two through 4 is another Messianic prophecy. And verse 3 says this, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. And so there was this, kind of old understanding that the Messiah would be able to judge by smell. And so they blindfolded him, they're just they're mocking him. Here, if you're really the Messiah, then you can tell by smell which one of us is hitting you and which one is beating you. So that's where this whole thing of prophecy comes in. We're going to skip 66 to 72, we talked about that last week. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So the Jews found him guilty of blasphemy, capital offense. They're not allowed to execute, only the Romans could execute. So they've got an issue. They've done this thing all night because Roman trials begin in the morning. They've got to get Jesus to Pilate in the morning because there's no provisions in the Old Testament law for uh, holding somebody, for detaining somebody. There are no jails, none of that type they don't have anything to do with him. So they've busted it all night to get him convicted, so they can get him to Pilate in the morning, so Pilate can then find him guilty of something that deserves death. Because that's the goal, is to have Jesus dead, and they can't kill him. So they changed the charge from Messiah, which is religious, to King, which is political. Same type of underlying connotation, but that's why you a shift in the charge. Pilate doesn't care that he says he's the Messiah. That doesn't mean anything to him. He doesn't care about blasphemy. That doesn't matter to him. You start talking about a king, well that's going to get his attention. His job is to keep the peace. If Jesus is someone who's stirring up trouble, well then we've got something to talk about. Roman court worked a little bit more like ours. Pilate's the sole decision maker. We would have a judge and would interrogate, ask for evidence. He had a group of advisors that he would go to and consult then he would issue a verdict, and that verdict would be carried out immediately. No appeals, nothing like that. This idea when when, when religious leaders see Pilate's not jumping on this and convicting Jesus immediately, it's that they kind of pile on. This is from Luke 23. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man subverting our nation, political. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, political, and claims to be Christ a king, political. It's kind of ironic that the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, have convicted Jesus of blasphemy because he's not political. What, what's the evidence that you're the Messiah? You don't have it, you don't have a group of followers, you're not strong, you're not overthrowing Romans, so they convict him on the fact that he's not political and they take him to Pilate and say, well, he actually is. So he's convicted by the Jews for not being political and convicted by Pilate for being political. Loses both ways. So Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say. Then Pilate announced, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Then they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Again, what they're saying is, he's a troublemaker. Your job, we know your job, is to keep the peace. This guy is trouble. You can go and look at John 18. We're not going to take the time to look there. and You can see the exchange between Jesus and Pilate over what exactly it means to be a king. Where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate seems to get that Jesus is not uh, who, the, who these religious leaders say that he is, that he's not a threat, but he's unwilling to let him go. Verse 4. So Pilate asked him again, Aren't you going to answer, see how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So if Jesus doesn't reply, Pilate has to find him guilty. No other choice. So he's amazed that Jesus isn't making any defense, knowing if you're not going to defend yourself, I don't have any choice. But to find you guilty. Now it was the custom of the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. You want me to release you, the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to them. There you see Pilate kind of sees through uh, what the chief priests are doing, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do when? Do them with the one you call the king of the Jews. Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? They shouted all the louder, crucify him, and wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So kind of what's going on there? Easy to pick on the crowd and say they're fickle. Just beginning of the week, their triumphal entry, Jesus is on a donkey, everybody's hail, king of the Jews, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody is for him. He's such a popular figure that the religious leaders are afraid to arrest him because it's going to cause a riot. And now you've got everybody screaming for him to be crucified. Kind of what happened in that interim. Pilate's anti-Semitic. We know that from history. He disdains the Jews, and they don't like him either. He's this Roman ruler who they feel like is oppressing them. He's, He's a sign of everything that's wrong with their national situation. So he comes out and says, "Do you want me to let Jesus go again? This is coming from someone who you know despises you as a people and who you don 't like either and then on the other hand, you have your trusted religious leaders who have had a legal trial and have determined that Jesus is a heretic that he 's a blasphemer, that he deserves to die. who are you going whose opinion are you going to go with? Are you going to go with this?" leader who, again, who you despise and who despises you, are you going to go with the religious authorities who you believe God has put uh, over you to protect you? Of course you're going to choose your religious leaders. And this guy, Barabbas, we look at him and think, golly, that's eesh. for them, he's a national hero. He participated in this uprising. They, they were trying to throw the yoke of Roman oppression off. He's who He's a hero. Them. Remember, this is the Passover when remembering God delivering the Jews from Egyptian rule. That this is reminding them of Moses. Hey, Barabbas is kind of like that. Moses did that, and Barabbas did this. Again, he's a popular guy. It's pretty easy for them to throw their weight behind him versus Jesus. Maybe some other things going on there as well, but that's a that's a I would say that's a large part of what's going on. These guys are not going to align themselves with Pilate against their religious authorities. And they didn't think Barabbas was such a bad guy. They saw him as a political hero who had done what maybe many of them were scared to do. They had Jesus flogged. We're not going to talk a lot, a lot about that. It's brutal. Many people didn't live through it. It was to soften you up for crucifixion. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is a praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with the staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. Both of these trials are parallel with the Jews and with the Romans. Falsely accused, wrongly condemned, and then he's mocked. The Jews mock him because, the, because he's uh, claiming to be the Messiah. These Roman guards mock him because he's claiming to be a king. That's what both of those things are going on. Again, you can read Isaiah 53 and see the parallels or the foundation that's running under that, this prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. So I'm going to step back a little bit make two quick observations, and then we'll be done. It's interesting to me that Jesus is a judge. That's what he says. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm going to judge all of this. He's a judge, but his judgment hinges upon our judgment of him. His judgment of me hinges on my judgment of him. And you can see that, that that kind of playing out here with his arrest and with his trial. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't try to prove himself. He doesn't say anybody's lying. He just is quiet the whole time. He said To me, he's saying, I had three years. He says when they arrested him, everything I said, everything I did, it was in public. I was in the temple just the other day and you didn't arrest me. You've heard what I've said. You've seen what I've done. You can talk to people who've been around me. It's all out there. And the decision that you made, your judgment of me, is that I'm a heretic, that I'm a blasphemer, that I'm demon-possessed, whatever you want to say, and that I deserve to die. That was their evaluation, their decision, their judgment upon him. And what he's saying is, I'll prove that I'm the Messiah when I come back, and I'm going to judge you. Not in a harsh way, but in a, it's, it's reality. For us, when we think about God as a judge, we kind of pull back from that, because it sounds, again, harsh and narrow-minded and intolerant and bigoted and all of these things. If I invite you to dinner at my house, and you say no, for whatever reason, if you say no, you can't get mad at me because you didn't get to eat with me, because you didn't get to eat my food. You're the one that said no. I said, come on. That's where God is sitting. Jesus to me said, listen, you've had three years to make a decision on who I am. I've answered every question you've brought. I've done this ministry in public consistently over the course of three years. If you're going to reject me, that's, that's on you, not on me. And the same thing again is true for us. In Mark 8, he says to Peter, who do you say that I am? That's the most important question any of us will ever answer. That, that there's evidence. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's evidence. That's a picture of who Jesus is. If, you don't, if that's hard for you to grasp and understand and put the Bible together, then begin to ask the Lord, God, I need some more clarity. I know that you've given me Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I don't get it. Speak to me in a way that I'm going to understand. I promise you he'll answer that prayer. He always does. He wants to reveal himself to us. And when he does, he's going to expect a response. Who do you say that I am? What is your judgment of me? Realize that what you do with him will determine what he does with you. It's not unfair. It's not mean-spirited. It's not intolerant. It's not narrow-minded. It's not bigoted. It's actually massively graceful. I'm going to respond to you based on how you respond to me. I'm going to give you all of this time and all of this evidence on which to base your decision. The question for us, maybe, you may say, you know, you can write the right thing on the index card. Who do you say that Jesus is? Maybe a question for you is, does your life reflect your judgment of him? Does the life that you're refl- living reflect your evaluation of who he is? If I were to look at, if I could somehow take a snapshot of you next week, would I draw the conclusion from looking at your life that Jesus is fill in the blank, whatever you say, healer, provider, friend, Lord, whatever he is to you, whatever your judgment is, But I see that through the way you're living your life? No guilt, no manipulation, something to think about. That's an integrity issue for us. Does my life reflect my judgment of him? Second thing. I would say, and we'll wrap with this. My Bible has Jesus' words in red, and there's not a whole lot of red in what just happened from uh, Mark fourteen forty-three all the way through 15, 20. Jesus hardly does or says anything. He seems very passive in the midst of all of this stuff that's swirling around him, and I think there's something that we can glean from that. Uh, Scott, will you show that slide? These are the things that I feel, these are the things that I saw that happened to Jesus. This probably 8, 10, 12 hours. All of this is compressed. He was betrayed. He was deserted. He was falsely accused actually twice, not just once. Wrongly condemned actually twice. Physically abused, disowned, and mocked. And You might can think of some other things as you read through. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of negative in a pretty compressed time period and I've wondered about me and wonder about us when we experience that degree and that intensity of negative circumstances what's our response Jesus stays quiet he stays centered he stays calm he seems to be at some degree of peace in the midst of all of this sometimes we say things like well the enemy is he's just attacking me right now and you kind of or god is mad at me i must have done something wrong and we start trying to figure out where we blew it or I'm not in the will of God anymore. And he's trying to get my attention and pull me back on course. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He stays centered. I think it's in Acts 26 when Paul is talking about his conversion. He says, God said to me, Why are you kicking against the goads? A goad is a pointed stick that was used to move animals in a particular direction when they were uh, working. So to kick against the goads was, kind of the, was this picture of moving in a direction that the master didn't want you to go. So what God is saying to Paul is, you're not living the life that I want you to live, and that's why things were, are difficult. You're not, you're, you're kind of, you're not, you're not going with the flow here. You're swimming upstream. You're kicking against the goad. You don't see any of that in Jesus. You see what looks like passivity is submission. He's wrestled all this through in the garden when he prays for hours, and then closes it with, "Not my will, but yours." be done. He's submitted to what God is saying. This is the thing. This is what you're in for. That next slide, Scott, you can see leading through Mark, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He predicts his betrayal. He predicts his arrest. He predicts being beaten and mocked, and he predicts being crucified and being raised again. I think that knowledge is what provides him with this foundation for being so full of peace and confidence as all of this stuff is swirling around him. John 13, right before the, all of the events of the last night of his life happen. John says, Jesus, knowing, let me see exactly what he says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And the next word is so. And then every all of this stuff, that follows. And that's where we need to be. We want to, There's some things that we want to know. So, all of the stuff that comes out of that. Most of us are not going to have 12 hours like Jesus had. It's not going to be that bad for us. But you can probably put some stuff on your slide. Some bad things that have some circumstances that have gone sideways. Those kind of things happen. And if you don't know what you know, it's easy to get off track and begin to defend myself. Or begin to question, am I really where God wants me to be? Or begin to question my relationship with God. Is he happy with me or is he not happy with me? Or to go into some type of fight mode. The enemy's coming after me and I'm, you know, we're going to get in this wrestling match. You don't see any of that from Jesus. He's just steady right here. He's taking it. We're not going to talk about whether who caused the circumstances is irrelevant. What matters is that God works through the circumstances to accomplish his mission in Jesus' life and the fact that Jesus knew this is what, how it has to be. This is what God is doing, and so I'm going to submit to that as he moves through these circumstances to advance his agenda. So my question for you, as we, again, kind of school's starting back, it's a natural transition point, whether or not you have children in school or not, it's fall is coming, kind of getting out of the summer rhythm into a fall rhythm. Let me ask you this, just straight up. Do you know what God is doing in your life? There's a few areas up here on this thing. Do you know what God is doing in your heart? If the deal is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, Romans eight twenty nine. do you have any idea what he's up to? What characteristics of Jesus he's trying to cultivate in your heart or what weeds he's trying to pull out that are crowding out his work? You want to cooperate with him on that. You don't want to kick against the goads. If he's trying to, again, cultivate something in you, it's, it's helpful to know what he's trying to do. Ma- many of you are married. You know what God's doing in your marriage beyond just, well, we're just trying to love each other better. That's great. Anything beneath that, anything more specific than that. For some of you, it could be that what God's doing in your marriage, he's saying it's time for y'all to lead together. It's time for y'all to do something together in leadership or in ministry or in service. You want to know what he's doing there. So you can say yes to that, and so you can arrange your circumstances accordingly. It could be something with reconciliation. Maybe he wants to use y'all to bring reconciliation to an extended family. I don't know. What about some of you who have children? Do you ever ask what God is doing in the lives of your kids? Under two, I think it's a pretty tough prayer to pray. He's trying to survive at that point, and they can't talk to you anyway. After two, are you asking, God, what are you trying to do? What are you doing here? Many of you have come up here and dedicated your babies and said, "God, they're yours." Are you checking in? What are you trying to do with these? I talked talked to two people in the past few weeks who feel like we've got to do a family mission trip. I got a kid and we've got to go overseas to do this. There's an awareness there of what God is doing in their family and with their children. They're saying, "We're not it's not Seaside this spring break and we're going to we're doing this instead. And it's, gonna, it's a big deal. They're shaping their life in some ways around that decision. Ask the Lord, what are you doing with my kids and my family, your job, if school if you're full time? There's no sacred, secular divide with the Lord. He wants access everywhere. It's all his. Have you ever asked him what he's doing in your company or what he's doing through your company in the community? Again, whether it's Christian or not is irrelevant. There are things that your company can do that can be a blessing to this community. Do you have any idea what God may be doing? And you may say, I'm not a decision maker. It doesn't matter. You have influence with him. And that's more important than having influence within your company. Ask him what he's doing. Get on board with that. Your friends, and experiment. If you know you're going to see these two people today, take a few minutes and pray specifically for them before you see them. And just ask, God, what are you doing in their life? You're not looking for dirt. You're not looking for gossip. You're not looking for God to tell you something that you can kind of whammy them with. You just want to know, God, what are you doing because I want to be a channel of your grace here. And then a, then when you have lunch or whatever it is that y'all are doing, do it through from the perspective of what you feel like you heard during that prayer. Have those kind of ears on When you're listening to them talk, it's not just same old, same old. You've asked God what he's up to. Community, how about this? Take the Marietta paper. Read it, at least the first two sections. Front page and the local section. Try to figure out what God's doing in our community. Ask him, where are you at work? I'm seeing these stories. I know there's a slant, big deal. Where are you in our community? What are you trying to accomplish? If you don't live in Marietta, whatever your local thing is, however you get news on your community, Kennesaw or Smyrna, wherever it is, ask him, what are you doing here? And how am I going to cooperate with that? Because he's working in our city, in our community, and we, again, we want to participate with him, and we absolutely don't want to kick against those goads. Your deal, we talk about that all the time. You have a, there's something God wants for you. Good works he's created for you to do. What is he doing with that right now on August 14th? Is it on the shelf? Time to move into a new phase of engagement? I, I don't know. Just be aware of what he's doing. We're going to close um, with worship. You guys can come back. And I want us to do this. Y'all can close your eyes and we're going to pray for a second. And then you can respond during this uh, last worship song as you feel led. God, my prayer for every man and woman in this room is that we would know what you're up to, plain and simple that we would know what you're doing in these different areas of our life so that we could cooperate with you. I'm thinking of again what all of this stuff is swirling around Jesus and he is he is dead center in the midst of all of it to not respond when people are slandering you. Just the the peace that it takes, self-control, whatever that is, to not respond. God, my prayer for each of us is that whatever's swirling around us, whether it's good stuff or difficult things, that those things would not sway us from what you're doing in us, that we would know what we know, and that we would move out and live our life from that solid foundation of what we know, not from this shaky foundation of what we're kind of experiencing in the moment. Two pieces of encouragement for you. One, God wants you to know. It's not 20 questions where you've got to guess and he reluctantly tells you what's going on. He wants you to know what he's doing. He's inviting you in to partner with him in his work, in your life, in your family, in your job, in your community. So he he wants to tell you what's going on. So ask him. And second, you can hear his voice. Don't doubt yourself on that. Jesus clearly says, his sheep know his voice. If you're following him, then you can hear him. You don't need anybody else to hear for you. So pick one or two of those areas. And as we close with worship, just ask the Lord, what are you doing here? Some of you, you're sitting next to your spouse and y'all need to pray together. God, what are you doing in our marriage? What are you doing with our kids? You need to get some clarity on that before they go to school tomorrow. You need to know what he's doing with your children. God, for all of us, again, we don't want to kick against the goads. And for many, it's not that we're intentionally doing that. It's just the inertia of our lives just keeps us going, doing what's next. We never step back and say, God, what are you up to and how do I cooperate? So we want to honor you enough to do that this morning trusting you to speak to us, and then asking you to give us grace to cooperate. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand up. Uh, We'll have some guys up front if y'all want prayer for anything.